pad I've been looking for for some time. Uh, it's played with a myriad of different uh, badasses all over the Bay Area and beyond. Um, Garth Weber, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you, Jake. I'm really glad to be here. It's an honor to have you, brother. You know, I just, I kind of wanted you to talk about um, the scene that you fell into in Sacramento as a teenager. Oh, no, no, no. You've got me confused with somebody else. I was born in Sacramento, but I... Okay, so you, mo- you moved out and said you left, you, you, you didn't live there. I didn't live there. I, we lived there for maybe six months or a year. So where did you, where did you uh, gravitate to? Well, uh, when, I, when I was 10, uh, we, we, well, okay, we moved around the country. My father was, worked for the Rand Corporation, and we were like a military family. So we moved from Sacramento to San Francisco. Then, And this is all in the space of uh, maybe three years. Uh, then we went to the East Coast, lived in Syracuse, New York. Uh, Shirley, Massachusetts. Then we moved across the country to Tacoma, Washington, uh, where we lived until I was 10. And then my parents split up, and my mom and my sister and I moved to my mother's family's farm in um, in Boulder, Colorado. And that's where I really grew up. Wow. So, I mean, you need to tell me what the scene was like in, in Boulder. I mean, that is... Well, it was... Uh, you know, I mean, at that time, it must have been so heady and stealth because in the 70s, I mean, more is like, like, yeah, I mean, it must have been completely under the radar. Well, I, it was, a, you know, it's a college town. It's, it's very much like where I live now in Berkeley. It's, a, you know, a college town of a, you know, in time Boulder was maybe 50,000 people. It would fluctuate when the school was in session. And, um, when I was about uh, 13 or 14, I saw a band um, called Zephyr, and it was Tommy Boland. Yeah, I know that. I've seen their records. I know those records. And so I remember, I almost jumped out of a moving car because we were driving by the park, and those guys were playing. And oh, I my was God. So, so enamored with, with uh, Tommy that I, I literally considered jumping out of the back of a moving car <laughs> to run and, sit and listen to them, you know? <laughs> and so so that was my introduction wow. to, um, you know, kind of underground rock. I mean, that was, they were sort of the, uh, the hippest band in that area at the time. And so, so... Uh, well, I'm sorry, I just want to stop you right there. They were, Zephyr was from Boulder. They, they, I, well, I know they, they played in Boulder or they lived in Boulder. I don't know if the band was actually started there or not, but that is was, so ridiculous because that, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess the records sort of translate, but I can only imagine how re- fierce their live shows must have been. Oh, I mean, they were so charismatic. Uh, Candy Givens was the singer, and she was kind of a Janis Joplin type of singer, real kind mm-hmm. of almost a little more screechy than, uh, than, um, not, not that, not in a bad way, but she was. You know, super intense and super aggressive. Sure. And then, uh, and then uh, her uh, husband, uh, David Gibbons, was one of the really one of my favorite bass players ever because he played it kind of almost a Jocko style, like you know, kind of busy with his right hand. And and they were you know, and then they had uh, a guy named Bobby Burge or no, I'm sorry, it was well, there were two different drummers. But Bobby Burge was one of them, and. Um, I, I think a guy named Chamber- somebody Chamberlain was the other one, mm-hmm. but then they they had Tommy, and Tommy was one of the most charismatic musicians I've ever known of. He was just 
something about him. You know, he had the thing. Just he was right, right. The it factor, yeah. And he, yeah, the X factor, and he could. I mean, he was such a good player even at the time. I actually, they played at the um, the UMC ballroom at the college at, at uh, CU. Sure. And I, somebody had gotten on the stage. One of the one of the crowd had gotten on the stage with them, and nobody seemed to mind. So I got up on the stage and sat. And Tommy was playing through two twin reavers, and I sat on one of the twin reavers while he was playing, and I could, you know, I could feel Holy cow. the the vibration of the amp. Because I mean, you know, a twin reverb is a hundred watt amp. It was loud as hell, and there were two of them, and so I just remember that was, in, you know, that was uh, I was in heaven. I couldn't have. There was no place in the universe I would rather have been. Um, was there? Did you? I guess. Were you? When did you? When did you consider yourself like becoming a professional musician? I mean, was your? Did your dad like? Uh, did your folks sort of? Um, maybe they didn't understand your decision, but they respected it. Uh, I don't think they did respect it. They didn't like it a bit. My father had been a musician at one point. He was he was a math teacher and he was also a computer programmer. But he had been a musician at one point. He had a duet with a woman who played piano and sang, and he played trombone and he sang. Wow. And he looked at a musician life as uh, like itinerant work. You know, you'd you'd get to a city, uh, some horrible place, and you'd, you'd generate enough money to get the hell out of there, and then you'd go to the next city, <laughs> you know, and rinse and repeat, right? So it, so his idea of what a musician's life was, was was not very a flattering idea. And I suppose in most cases he was right. It, I think He said something to me one time. He said... Um, I think you'll enjoy music more as an avocation than as uh, than as being a professional musician. And yeah. if it wasn't for the fact that I was nothing was going to stop me, I, I when I was eleven, I saw a band in um, in Golden Gate Park. I was visiting my father out here in California, and I remember walking around looking for something to do. And I heard music, and I came across the uh, band shell. And and the rock sixties rock band Moby Grape was playing. Oh, Jerry Miller. Uh, Jerry Miller. This would have been in uh, let's see, this would have been in nineteen sixty six. And I stood there and I listened to that band. Now I I don't necessarily know that it was that I liked their music so much, I don't remember, but I liked the idea of a band. Right. I stood there and with all the, the pomp and circumstance of deciding what I was going to have for lunch, I said, I'll do that. And I made the decision in that moment that I was going to be a musician. And I never changed back. I never had a moment's doubt about it. So when my parents tried to convince me not to do it, they were just, it was futile. There was no way they were going to affect my decision one iota. I was in all the way, come rain or come shine, I was going to do, I was, I was, it wasn't that I was going to do it. I just was doing it from the, I got back to that day that I saw the band. I got back to my father's apartment and I asked him if he had any instruments. And he had a pair of uh, brushes for playing drums. Mm -hmm. And I took them back to Boulder when I went back. And I I lived on a farm and I and there was enough stuff lying around on the on the farm. We we had a 440 acre farm that, that had been in the family for a hundred years, and oh. there was machinery and and nuts and bolts and and old cars and wood and so i could build anything i wanted to I, I could have built a spaceship and so i built a set of drums and at the age of 11 i started out as a drummer wow. 
And then when I met uh, Tommy Bolin, they rehearsed in his band Energy, which was uh, uh, the, one of the first fusion bands. This would have been uh, 71 or 72. Right. Uh, they were rehearsing in, in a, a dairy barn on my on our property. Oh, this is unbelievable. And this is I out of control. I got one day from, from uh, Ed, and uh, his voice goes, uh, Garth, this is Tommy Bolin. I hear you've got a place where we could practice, you know? And I'm like, oh my God, this is like, like you know, <laughs> these things don't happen to somebody. And uh, so they started rehearsing and it was every Sunday for the whole summer. And I had a little man cave that was a smaller room attached to the same building. And so I had my drums in there. And so uh, one day they were rehearsing, and I got on the drums and started trying to play along with them. And they stopped, and the door opened, and Tommy leaned in. And he said, hey, Garth, you can't play, man. You're messing us up. <laughs> I, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and so I looked around the room, and I had a guitar. I had an electric guitar. And so I just picked it up. I didn't plug it in because I knew I didn't want to bother them. And I started just playing with, along with the band. And when they finished the rehearsal, I went to Tommy, and I said, I said, Tommy, can you show me? Uh, such and such a chord and what, what's the line you played here and uh, he was so generous and took time probably a half an hour more after every rehearsal to show me uh, chord shapes and how he fingered certain lines and stuff and of course I'm sitting in this dairy barn you know three feet in front of a Marshall stack um, wow. and, and I'm paying attention to every single thing that was going on in the room I knew you know, I understood how a Leslie speaker worked because I was sitting right next to the keyboard player and I was watching him change speed from Celeste to Tremolo. And, and I, and I, there was a, the bass player had an acoustic 360, which was a very interesting bass amp. And, um, so I was like hawkish about paying attention to every single thing that was going on. So I was learning what it was like to be in a, a, a band leader because Tommy would, he would, they'd start the song and he'd say, no, 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 listen to the riff, man. And in each, and so I understood how you could coach the band into playing the right parts and, and recognize that something wasn't quite right because his ears were so good. So, so that was invaluable because I was learning how not just to play the guitar, but how to, how to be a band leader and how to be a, a member of a band. Um, you know, I, I just, this is, um, Leland Sklar and Billy Cobb are, are good good friends of mine, and they, you know I, I treasure their their guidance on my journey. And they, uh, you know, they had this opportunity um, to do that album that came along a couple of years later, Billy's first solo album called Spectrum, and it was Tommy. Well, I, Tom, I, I wore that thing out. Right. I mean, you know, he's Ron Carter's on two tracks, but um, it's basically Lee, so Stanley Clark uh, was actually the original bass player, but. Um, Billy was like, there's just too much language going on. And so he called Lee because the section had been on tour with Mahavishnu Orchestra. So he knew uh, Kunkel and Sklar and those cats. And Sklar took a red eye in. And what Lee said was, and this is getting to my question, is that because it was, uh, because it was Billy and Jan Hammer and Tommy, Tommy Bolin and Sklar, it was more of like a, rock fusion album than it was a jazz fusion album and right. i just, and i i wanted you to like even in those younger days when he was shedding with you 30 minutes after the rehearsal did he come at it from um i mean obviously the jazz emanated from the blues but he was more of a rocker than a jazz 
Do you think he could have played bebop and, and things like that? I, I don't know if he... I, I, he, he may not have wanted to, but I, I just wonder about his dexterity, you know? Well, he had chops, but the, he was a guy who got the most out of the chops that he had. I mean, he didn't have McLaughlin's kind of chops or anything. Right. And he didn't have... He had very. Looking back on it, he had a very limited knowledge of scales. But what he had was a, 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 an aesthetic that everything he played sounded good, <laughs> phrasing, and his technique was right, so clean. Right. And it, he had these rhythmic, uh, you know, uh, fairly sophisticated rhythmic ideas, and he had a great tone. So he he just maximized what he had. I mean, he he didn't have the kind of chops that Al Demiola had or that. That um, you know, a lot of other of the jazz rock players, they were far beyond him harmonically. Right. But he sold it in a way, and partly because of you know of his looks and the fact that he dressed. I mean, he came to these rehearsals in my dairy barn wearing red velvet bell bottoms and and high platform shoes and a and like a silk blouse. You know, I mean, he, he looked. He, he that's how he rolled all the time. He was wow. his hair. You know, he, he was the first person I saw where his hair was like three different colors. And right, just, right, right. Dude, he was yeah, such. He was so ahead of the curve. Yeah, he just he exuded charisma, and so whatever he lacked in terms of of technical, mu- uh, 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 you know, uh, theory right. and music, he more than made up for in other ways. So to answer your question, I don't think he would. I, I just don't think he would have uh, learned to play bebop. But I, I don't know. It's it, he was. You know, he probably could have done a lot of things if he'd wanted to. That maybe we, uh, maybe I. Would I mean, have he. I mean, the, the 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 stuff that he did on Spectrum is just filthy. It's the best playing I think that was ever recorded of him. Yeah, I think that's a definitely uh, uh, that's a correct statement. But that so was, so you know, he, yeah. His albums that he, his solo albums that he released later. By that time, he was so drugged out that. I just don't think they were as good as they could have been, and of course, I, I would imagine there was being uh, the pressure being put on him by the record companies to tailor his. Music it commercialized the music, yeah. Yeah, but like, like Stratus, you know that that song. Oh my god! I mean, forget and, it. And Quadrant Quadrant Four was another one that I right. sat the, my record player and played those songs for hours at a stretch. I had to know. I, at one point, I had memorized the. I mean, I could play the entire solo, <laughs> note for note. I mean, like with all the inflections, with what I call the atomic level, which is, you know, you, there's different ways to hit a note. You can you can hit it straight on. You can slide to it, which is called a gliss. You can uh, hammer on. You can pull off. You can bend to the note, and that is a language all in and of itself, which to me is what's cool about electric guitar. It's what I like about Jeff. Beck's playing. It's not the it's not the scale knowledge. It's the nuance that goes into the actual execution, and mm. and, and Tommy had that in spades. And and because I loved it so much, I acquired that. Did you uh, did you when you, when you basically were hell bent on becoming a musician? Did you were you in a road dog kind of band that was around? Did like the Mountain West circuit? Nope. I was in bands that we rehearsed. We never gigged. I mean, once in a while we'd have a, you know, we'd play at a school dance or um, or we'd get some weird gig, you know, for some events. But we never, I didn't play a club until I really didn't start, you know, like making money at music till I was 22. And I, I was, um, I had met in 1976, I met Robin Ford. Hmm. Um, 
I, I was uh, I walked into a uh, I don't remember if it was a record store or a music store, and I ran into this acquaintance of mine, uh, a drummer named Russell Bizet, was a, a good kind of uh, like a almost like a Lenny Williams kind of drummer. Sure. And, and he said he said, Hey Garth, you ought to come to this gig I'm doing tonight. You got to hear this guitar player. And I said, Well, where's the gig at? And he says, At the Boulder Planetarium. And I thought, What? And so. I went, and, I, and it's funny because normally, uh, you know, if people would invite me to stuff, I I might be polite and say, "Oh yeah, maybe I'll see you there," and I wouldn't even think about going. But I, but to this, I went, and I walked into, I paid my three dollars or whatever it was, and I walked into the the Boulder Planetarium, you know, the into the egg, you know, where they project the yeah. the stars on the ceiling, and the uh, projector uh, retracted into a, a a hole in the floor, so it didn't get in the way of you seeing or anything, and so this band starts playing. And it was um, it was a guy named Gene Rush on keyboards who was a keyboard player from Denver. It was uh, uh, there was a guy uh, first name John and I can't remember his last name uh, playing a met a, a mellotron, which was a very rare uh, uh, instrument. You didn't uh, the only time I ever saw one. It, it, it was like a some sort of like a keyboard kind of thing. It's a keyboard that had tape cartridges in it, and when you'd play like, <laughs> <coughs> like Moody Blues used it a lot. Um, right. When you press a key, it would play back a tape recording of whatever instrument it was. Normally, it was strings. And so there was a limit on how long you could hold the note because the tape would run out. And then when you let the key up, the tape would rewind and, and real quick, and then you could play it again. But, I mean, this was, you know, analog technology uh, in its infancy, really. And so, uh, anyway, this band started to play. And when it was Robin Ford and within a matter of minutes i had a tectonic shift in what i understood about music mm. because whereas every other guitar player that i loved you know hendrix and page and and uh, uh jeff beck and uh richie blackmore and uh, you know uh, uh those guys all played pretty much pentatonic or, or maybe blue scale sure. you know, which involves the flat fifth but robin was playing flat nines and flat fives and diminished scales and it just it just awed me and i remember thinking you know i've never heard anybody play it have it sound like that so at the end of the gig i went up to robin introduced myself i said do you teach and he said yes and, and the thing was he had been on the road with um with tom scott and the la express and they'd been playing with Joni mitchell that's right and he and he was waiting for his contract to expire in fact a, uh, an article came out in the Boulder paper uh, saying uh, Robin Ford biding his time, which he was just waiting for his contract to, to run out, and then he could start working with other bands. So he was kind of just, just chilling in Boulder for, um, I, I don't know if it was a year or more. Oh. And so I went to his house, and I did three lessons with him. And, in, and I got more out of the first lesson, really probably more out of the first 15 minutes of the first lesson, than I ever got out of any other lesson I've taken, and I've only taken six lessons in my life. Hmm. Uh, it, it was, uh, and and he he told me some things about my playing. He said you have a good sense of rhythm, and of course that was because I started out as a drummer. And so, so I uh, I took you know I I could kind of milked that situation for as much as I could, and then Robin moved to L.A. Uh, so he said I can't do any more lessons. I'm going to be leaving town, and and so he moved to L.A. And so at at the time I'd asked him. Um, I, because I wasn't in any bands that were working. I was in a band, a kind of a fusion band named Dayride, 
that was a, a very good band, but we had no gigs. Right, 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 right. And, and so I said, I said, well, you know, Robin, should I like stay in this band or should I go to Denver and get a gig? And he said, why can't you do both? And that had never occurred to me, you know. So uh, I, so I, I stayed in the uh, Dayride band, but that broke up very quickly afterward. And I went to Denver and I got uh, in a band what we called a middle of the road band. It was kind of like uh, a band that played current music you know we played some doobie brothers and gordon lightfoot and, mm-hmm. and he also played you know mac the knife and uh, you know stuff it was trying to appeal to all ages and uh it was actually a pretty good little band and we ended up going we toured around um northwestern united states we played up in oregon and and uh idaho washington uh but mostly we stayed around denver and so i got experience of being on stage you know that was it was five nights a week and i was making pretty good money i was making um 250 a week so that's a thousand dollars a month and my rent was 145 dollars a month and in those days gas was like you know 30 cents a gallon right. and, uh, and electricity bill was like a dollar 99 so it was, so i was actually financially uh solvent you know which 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 which, when i told my father he didn't believe me and i because he didn't think this was possible and i had to get out pay stubs and show him and then he was like wow i just didn't think this could be done because he didn't understand about top 40 bands and so i did that for a few years and then i realized that there was no upward mobility there was no at that time i didn't know of at least any kind of an, uh, an original music scene in denver or boulder uh, and I mean, there may be more in Boulder, but it was in those days, it was kind of what was popular was kind of country rock and stuff. And that wasn't my thing. So I decided I was going to move to LA. And so this would have been, uh, uh, 1979. Yeah, I, thought, I was, I was one year, I was one year old. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, that is so, so great. I mean, so, so you, cause that's fascinating because. I mean, the studio scene had all but dried up when you moved out there. Well, I didn't get to L.A. That's, that's the thing. What happened? I, well, I, I decided to visit my dad in San Francisco because I hadn't seen him very much since I was 10. And so I thought, I'll go out there, I'll spend a few weeks with my dad, and then I'll, I'll head to L.A. Well, I never left the Bay Area. I don't blame I you, man. I don't bl- that was such a beautiful time to be in the Bay Area. And, and it was, and I immediately... Uh, enmeshed myself in the music scene. I got a gig within a month or something uh, in a real good rock band. You know, kind of we did Springsteen kind of stuff, and <clears throat> we didn't do any blues, but but it was close enough. I mean, I was I was gigging. The people were, you know, we were playing crowded clubs that you know for enthusiastic audiences. So it was all good for me. And then uh, at some point, I got tired of of, of that band, and I there was a, a keyboard player named Merle Saunders. And he uh, was kind of famous because he had a duet with um, with uh, uh, Jerry um, Garcia. And the guitar player that had been playing with, with Merle and I switched bands. We traded bands. And I got into Merle Saunders' band. And so now the stuff that I'd learned from... Um, Hold on. Th- time out for a second. Because this is so classic. Because I've interviewed uh, Merle Saunders Jr. and Tony... And Merle's deep, his spirit is deep in my soul on this journey. I've interviewed guys that had played Calvin Keyes and Michael Howell and all those cats. So Chris Hayes, 
was in the band in 76. Then he went to Huey Lewis in the news. So who did you trade with? Who were you trading with? It was a guy named Paul. Um, God, what was Paul's? Uh, uh, oh, man. It was, it was Bonnie Hayes' boyfriend. Um, Paul, uh, like a common last name, not Smith, but it was something like Right, something. right. So, 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 so he, this cat was, so how did you actually meet Merle for the first time? Boy, I I think I don't remember actually. Okay, I, I love that. I love that answer. It's all right. Go ahead. I, I went to a club called Bay Jones in San Francisco, and he was playing, and I sat in with him, and and I remember he kept mopping <laughs> his nose with a Kleenex, and he was there was blood, and uh, he was he had gotten um, cancer of the soft palate from doing cocaine, and so so he was out of commission for a while, but then he got he got out of the hospital. And he asked me if I wanted to join the band, and so I did. Um, and uh, I played with him for two years. Uh, Don't even tell me that Larry Van was on drums. Larry Van was on drums. Oh my God, my freaking, oh, my dear uncle Larry Van. I can. This is so. This is warming my heart, dude. Oh, good. This is and, beautiful and, stuff. And, this is really beautiful. Go ahead. So you guys were like playing like Keystone Palo Alto. Like, what kind of gigs were you playing? No, mostly clubs, you know, uh, we, I don't think we ever played anything that big. We play, uh, we play on Hate Street quite a bit. Really? We, what, what clubs did you play? Oh boy, you're asking questions that I don't know the answers to. Uh, there was, there was a place called Heaven's Gate, I think, uh, that was one place we played. And Well, because uh, the scene know, had changed by 80, 79, it had changed so much, that's why I ask, you know. It's a, you know, to me, the fact that, so you guys were playing essentially like, do I move you? That kind of stuff. Uh, that, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, and shuffles and that sort of thing. Oh. We opened up for Jimmy Smith uh, at uh, at the Eli's Mile High Club in Oakland. Oh my God! Are you kidding me, dude? I would have paid a million dollars to see that. For a week, we opened up for him, and I swear to God, I tell people this, and I'm not 100 percent sure this is what I heard, but it still, still makes a funny story anyway. Uh, uh, one night, uh, Jimmy introduced us, and he said, "Ladies and gentlemen, the Merle Saunders aggravation." <laughs> oh, <my. laughs> dude, that man was out of his mind. I love Jimmy Smith. I love Merle too. You know, because I mean, I'm Tony Sa uh, Merle Saunders Jr. I mean, he they on on the weekends. You know, uh, Cannonball or Miles, those cats were hanging with Merle. Merle was super close with Cal Jader and all. And the, I mean, I did a great interview with Johnny Mathis, and it, he goes back to the original Haight-Ashbury before it was the one we, we all came to know. Him and Merle are in, like, a, a band playing sock hops with, like, vibes, keyboard, upright bass. I mean, this dude was, he was, yeah. you know, he was, he was, I mean, I thought, you know, he never was, like, Mr. Chaps, but. Again, that charisma, you know. But and, and, yeah, and he he was he knew how to sell it, you know. He just knew how to yeah, right. to, to look like he knew what he was doing. And there were times <laughs> when, you know, there were times when he was he was playing beyond his chops, but but I didn't know because I I was he was my uh, uh, conduit into what little jazz I do play uh, because I had, and I had taken some lessons from Bruce Conti from Tower of Power. Oh man, and my dear, I did, I did, I, I did such a great interview with him. Rest in peace. What a beautiful cat. 
I know. I saw. Uh, I looked through your interviews, and I was. I just was scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I know. It just goes saw, never ends, dude. So I've listened to a few of them now, but I'm going to get to that one. But uh, so, so Bruce had showed me the modes, and he showed me a, a couple of jazz licks. But in in the Carter Miller band, which is I was in previously, which is the band that I traded out of, um, there was no use for that stuff. Right. I didn't play those those you know kind of like you know jazzy kind of lines because it wouldn't have worked. And so now I'm in Merle's band, and now I don't have enough of that stuff. So I began to try to cultivate a little bit more uh, of a jazz mentality, you know, more more uh, scales and more modes and that sort of thing. Um, and I only got so far with it. Uh, it I, I think there's. I was never going to be uh, a John McLaughlin because I I can't think when I'm playing. I if I have to think, then I it slows. I I'm so slow at it that I can't just exude and, and emote the way I want. To. I mean, yeah, there, there there's very few people that can. There's nobody that's John McLaughlin. I mean, you know. But I know what you're saying. You were not. You were not going to just you know go off into the cosmos and, and be like that. Okay. It's a matter of, of playing from either an emotional standpoint or from a cerebral standpoint, and I'm a little closer to the to the emotional right, uh, right. side of the continuum, you know. So, um, like, did you guys actually, I know Merle was in the studio making, did you ever tour with Merle to, to promote his albums? No, no, we, we never did an album. Uh, I, I, no, I'm sorry, I did play on, I played on one song on one of his albums, uh, at um, uh, oh, what was the, stu- uh, the studio here in, in Berkeley um, where where Creedence Clearwater did all their oh, stuff? Oh, Fantasy, Fantasy, and that was the only recording I ever did with him. So it was all club work when, when I was doing it. Now I don't even remember how old Merle was at this point. Maybe in his fifties or something. Absolutely. Uh, and we and, and we uh, we did some weird things. We went up to uh, Montana and played a gig with Buffy St. Marie. Oh, this is unbelievable. And I got to meet that that huge Indian guy that was in in um, the Jack Nicholson movie. Uh, uh, Rolling Thunder. Huh? Rolling Thunder. No, that where he's in the mental hospital. Oh my God, dude! That guy. I don't know what his name was, but he was the sweetest mountain of a man. You know, he just couldn't have been nicer. Uh, and and Buffy, not so much. She was. Wait, he was yeah. in her. He was in her band, or he was just there hanging out. He was there because it was an Indian hang. You know? I did. I did. So Merle went up there do for the Indian hang. That is so sick. Yeah. Uh, so we did a few things like that. Well, who probably, else? Who's playing bass in that band? Michael Oliver Warren. Dude, the and nastiest just, cat ever, dude. He's great. And I've seen him with Van at a police bar in San uh, San Carlos, California. Uh, yeah. Cop bar, Michael Warren and Larry playing their asses off. I mean, I cannot imagine what that must. I would have lost my mind. He was uh, he was just in the studio here. I, I have a studio where I've recorded about 130 albums for people, and uh, he came in with um, a local guitar player. And this is only a few weeks ago, and it was such a good thing to see him, man. It was just you know, there's something about the camaraderie of of recording music together with with good players, you right. know. Uh, we had, you know, just a trio. It was a guitar player, uh, bass, and drums, and they're but they're all good players, and you know, and I'm good at my job. So that's it's just a pleasure. Everybody knows their job. You don't have to explain anything to anybody. You just and you're laughing and having a good time. And and at this stage in my life, 
you know, we're having remembrances of things that happened back with, you know, do you remember when Merle said this and we'd all laugh and stuff? So that it's just, uh, it's such a pleasure to to have the the body of experience I've had from, you know, from 43 years just here in the Bay Area of, of working every day with musicians. And, you know, I mean, I, I was thinking uh, the other day that I haven't failed to play music one day in the last 43 years. I mean, <laughs> back before that. Right. Every single day I play music. I mean, it's a complete blessing, and, uh, you know, if you can find a way. I mean, do you feel like, like, it, it's interesting because even in San Francisco in the early 80s, uh, you know, cost of living was still pretty reasonable, and... The, you were still getting decent bread for the gigs. I, I, you know, a musician was seen as a viable profession in society. And I, and I have so many friends. I mean, at 45 years old, I mean, I have friends that are playing. It's, it's funny you use that term that Boulder and Denver didn't have an original music scene. Because, like, now the only thing that seems to be monetized is just playing, you know, uh, cover music or bands that are rehashing stuff they played from 40 years ago, uh, where, you know, I was just with Jerry Cortez from Tower of Power in the, in the late seventies when he was in Santa Cruz, you know, the club owners were like, yeah, we don't want to hear those covers. We want to hear your original music, man. Wow. And, you know, and it was like, and, and people came and were singing these tunes and the, the band didn't even have a record out. So it's yeah, just, yeah. it's changed so well, you much, know, you know. You were, uh, you were, I, I listened to your, the reason I even... Uh, I'm glad you've stumbled I, on my show, dude. Well, and it was uh, the Patrick Ford episode with somebody with whom I have... Lots oh my God, legendary cat. And uh, so so Pat said something interesting. He said, he said, you know, I don't think that... I think the way he put it was that music is the blood of people anymore. He said, you know, it's like it's not, it isn't fulfilling the same um, purpose that it used to. And then you said something like, yeah, it's kind of being used for background music and that sort of thing. And it occurred to me that I know people who, who people I really like, who I never hear music coming from their house. They, right. they don't talk about music. They're not interested in in music as far as i can see and i i mean in my generation if you didn't have a, a, a set of bookshelf speakers and a tuner and a, and a bunch of records then something was wrong with you yeah there were the, it's it's really it's just the uh, the way people talk about music i mean even a, a lot of these big shows their performances they're not it's not true burning music where uh, it just it had a soul relevance, and a part of that had to do with, you know, you'd you'd roll up in these towns or cities, and you know if you were on tour, you'd be there for five days. Back when Mike Finnegan, my dear late uncle, with the surf, oh, wow. with the surfs, you know, they'd be at a club for a month. So you, I mean, the, the, you start to see regular people, you start to have friends, you start to have connections. And it just sort of rolls, I mean, these, you know, and then, you know, so, so the, the touring circuit in this country, which has never been great, but, um, and with COVID, it got emaciated, you know, so it's just, but the way people are also absorbing music, I mean, let's face it, I mean, 
you basically lived a good majority of your life as an as uh, someone who was who was taking in information uh, uh, auditorily, uh, and you know, like my kids and people like that. They, you know, and they, and you know, I had I had a TV. I didn't have cable till I was like thirteen. I didn't. I mean, when I went to college in the late nineties, there was dial-up modem. So just that that yeah. interface now is is separating the spiritual qualities of music and the ability to have complete descarga and, and spiritual discharge and healing from it. Yeah, I, I, I and I'll, sometime we'll have to talk about the healing power of music because I have a whole. Oh, dude! Uh, I, please riff, dude. It's it saved me, man. Yeah, I mean, it. it uh, I, I guess at the risk of uh, alienating some people, I'll say that when that when uh, Donald Trump was was voted in as president, I cried. And the next night, I got to my gig, and the bass player uh, came over to me and he said, "Are you all right, Garth?" And I said, "Yeah. Why do you ask?" He says, well, "You just don't look like your normal self." And I said, "You know what? I I'm not really okay." Right. But by the end of that gig, I I felt like myself again. The music somehow made it okay. To be joyful again, right, right, and and so uh, so and I and, and there's a Sting movie called All This Time, which is which is a movie that uh, it, it's a documentary about a concert that he gave in his at his house in 2001, and it they filmed uh, the rival of all the musicians, and I mean it was top notch people like a big band like maybe eleven or twelve pieces, and they. It, turned out that the concert was on uh september 11th 2001 and so they're you know they hear about the twin towers and they're sitting around this table trying to decide what to do whether to just cancel the gig or go on with it and they decide they're going to do a limited show and when they start playing it looks like everybody's puppy died they the background uh, singers aren't wow. dancing wow everybody looks so glum and then Little by little, joys, little sparks of joy appear, and by the end of that gig, people are happy again. And I, that just wouldn't happen without music. I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, I have to ask you. I mean, tell me, tell me how you connected with Bob Weir. Oh, okay. I was in this. I got a call one day from a guy named Matthew Kelly. Oh my God! I got to send you my Matt Kelly interview. Okay. No, dude, Matt. I cannot. I dude, that's Matt, yeah. You knew Matt, because Matt, he was on the scene there. Yeah, he was. Well, you know, he grew up with Bobby, uh, so yeah. So they. So I don't know how Matt heard of me, but he called me up and 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 said, "Can I come meet you?" And so he came to my house, and we sat and talked for a while. And he told me about the band. He said, "You know, we have as many as." three members of the dead in the band at any given time. And so it would be, uh, usually Bob Weir was in the band. Sometimes uh, it was normally Bill Kreutzmann on drums. And then it was sometimes uh, Brent Midland, the keyboard player, who was quite good, actually. Dude, he was ridiculous. And so we started, we and we were playing pretty big gigs. We were playing halls. And we were playing like the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey. We play, um, boy, now I've forgotten some of the names. But we play, you know, 2,000 seaters. Uh, and and we would we'd kill because of the of the dead connection. So it would be sold out with a, a completely enthusiastic crowd, and we're just playing blues basically. And they just turned me loose, and so I could solo as much as I wanted to. I didn't. Nobody told me what to play. Hold on a second. What this is so interesting because I can was this like I mean this because 
Was it like 81, 80? When was this? It started in 82, and I played until, I think, 89. Right, okay, so, but we're talking about, it started in 82, because because in 82, Bobby and the Midnights was still very much alive, but Kingfish was also, at the same time, you're saying you had gigs as Kingfish. Yes, yes. In eighty two, this is really important. You're telling me in eighty two that Kingfish had gigs. Yes, I think so. I think that's the year we started. You, yeah, and they had, uh, you know, they, there was a they had a guitar player named uh, Robbie Hodnot. Right. And um, and I for some reason he wasn't in the band anymore, and they needed somebody, and so so they so so I started playing, and I think. You know, it was one of these things where I was in like three or four different bands at the same time. I was in the Mark, I started out in the Mark Ford band with Jerry Cortez, by the way. Oh, that's so Uh, great. And and Jerry and I hit it off the first rehearsal. We hugged each other because it was obvious we weren't going to get in each other's way. You know, it's it's such a nice, he was such a gracious player and I, I, I tried to be respectful myself. So, so yeah, I think we started Kingfish in 1982 and it would be, these little three-week or four-week tours, you know, it wouldn't. Sometimes we play locally, but not usually. Um, and so we we we'd go out, we we tour the East Coast, or maybe sometimes we'd go. Uh, Colorado actually went where I, of course, I grew up, uh, and it would just be like a sort of a a limited hit, you know. We'd go out and, and just no, I think it's I think it's fascinating because he was doing this in tandem with. I mean, he was doing these dates around Bobby and the Midnights and the Grateful Dead. Yeah, and everybody was everybody was kind of moonlighting, you know, or or uh, it, mercenarily moonlighting, you know. Because Garth, this is really special, man. So you're, I mean, because I, I just would love you to talk about. Um, I know you were in a multitude of bands, but um, just talk about how. Uh, you know Brent and Billy, man. I, I, those are my two favorite cats outside of Garcia. I, I mean, I love both of them so much. And uh, did you guys have a good time on the road together? Was it, and were the, and was it fun? I mean, because those guys were never into, even though they weren't playing, you know, sophisticated music per se. They were never in into um, playing the same song the same way once. Right, that's true. Uh, that was. I think that's one of the attractive things about blues, is that it's a skeleton, and you the, you can put the meat on the bone any way you want to. Right. So you know, there's a, a flexibility, a malleability about it, and you can be so creative and still be true to the song. And I, I, you know, you don't have to play a specific part. You can kind of follow your muse, and and uh, you respond to the immediate situation. If if somebody's playing a lot, you know, maybe the keyboard players playing a lot of fills or something then you you you, you kind of play a little more sparsely or if if you, if nobody's playing much then you need to step up then you do that and so it's different every night and you know you asked if it was fun oh my god it was fun because we were we were big shots and, and the you know we'd get to I mean, I mean we had crew you know we didn't have to touch our equipment right and these guys were so you know like what can i do next for you you know they were just the nicest cats there was a guy named John Murray who was just great, and and other guys whose names I can't remember now. But they were they couldn't have been more supportive and helpful. Uh, well, I was going to say if you paid them, but of course we did. <laughs> yeah, of course you. Wait, were you guys on? A, were you guys on like a, a um, big tour bus? 
Yeah, we, 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 we had the Allman Brothers tour bus. And an interesting thing happened that we were up in Vermont, I think it oh was. Oh, my God. This is and, insane. And the bus, the bus breaks uh, a, 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 a drive shaft at it, in the middle of farmland. And we're sitting there where you can see in the, in the distance, we didn't see a farmhouse. But there was not, nothing else except white snow on the ground for as far as the eye can see in any direction. And this has been days before cell phones. Um, you know, we were sitting ducks. Wait, hold on. Was, was there heat on the bus, dude? <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. But, but you, know, you can't sit there forever, I, you know, idling the engine. So, so uh, we looked and down... In the distance, we see a man walking <laughs> toward us, right? And it's this farmer, like he sees us, you know, standing there. And he comes down and he says, what's going on? And we told him. And he goes, okay, I'll be right back. And so he walks back. And I, I guess he, he drove back with a welder. And he fixed the um, axle, or I fixed, fixed the drive shaft, welded it, and charged us $50. <laughs> Yo, no, but this is why I'm going to send you something that's going to be in your collection for the rest of your life, because for some reason, that was January 1985, and you guys were playing the Flynn Theater in Burlington, Vermont. And Get Bi- out! I, dude, listen to me. This is insane. Kreutzmann somehow was there before the gig. Before you, He is riffing on the bus breaking down. He has to kill time for two hours for you guys to get there. I don't know why he was... It oh my was, God. I'm gonna. This is gonna blow your mind because he's telling he was getting wasted there. I mean, the, the the fans were bringing him Jack and Cokes, and the band broke down in the farmland of Vermont, just like you just said. Yes. Holy! I shit. remember that, and they had to and riffing with the audience, you know, telling stories. Dude, about Garth, the wait till I, wait till you hear. Dude, this is an hour of Billy, like like ad libbing and telling great stories about like Turkish bathhouses. In the last bathhouse in New York, going there with Belushi. I mean, this is like insane. And he was really lit. He was high, man. He was out. Yeah. And you guys were you guys were like freezing to death in the in the. In, I don't know why he was there early, but he had to kill like two or three hours. I wonder how he got from the bus to the gig. I don't know if he. Either way, I'm going to send you this stuff. It's just so that so eighty four. 84-85 was uh, Garth Weber with Kingfish uh, in that, in 80, you're saying 82. Started. We started in 82 and it was off and on for, I mean, I don't know that, I don't know that I did every tour, but I did a lot of them. Right. And, and we did an album in 85 called uh, Alive in 85. And they, we recorded it at um, a studio in uh, uh, Petaluma area, <clears throat> which is north of San Francisco. Oh, I love that town, yeah. An hour, and um, and then uh, those guys were a little a little uh, exaggerating of things, and so so basically, I got a call at noon. Uh, Matthew called me and he said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Nothing, sleeping." And he said, "Well, what you want to make an album?" And I said, "Sure." He says, "Okay, come up to uh, Prairie Sun Studio," and uh, and so I get up there. And the band set up, and I set my stuff up, and he looks at me, and he goes, what do you want to do? And I thought, wow, this is spontaneous. So I said, well, how about uh, Dancing in the Streets, because I used to do that. Right. So so count the song. And, and so we recorded the whole album on the fly with no no second takes, as I recall, no overdubs, 
and no fixes. So it was as close to a live performance. In fact, the fact that they actually sold it as a live album it has some veracity because it really was done live in the studio. But they claimed that it was recorded at the Sweetwater, and then they overdubbed applause from the Fillmore, which, of course, the Sweetwater holds maybe maybe 75 this is This is, this is insane. <laughs> this is, dude, it was called Wing and a Prayer or something? No, that, no, this, that, I was on that one too, but no, this is called Alive in 85. Uh, you were on Wing and a Prayer. So, Alive in 85 is you, Matt Kelly, Bobby, Brent, Billy. No, no, Bobby's not on it. Um, Brent's not on it. It was, um, it was, uh, let's see, uh, the drummer was Dave Perper. Yeah. The player was probably Dave Morgan. Morgan. Yeah, the city section. And, uh, and then uh, Barry Flast on keyboards. He was he was Matthew's partner, and me. You know, and so that was the band. It was it wasn't really. There was no. There were no dead in. There was no. So, so that. So even though, so when Kingfish would tour, I'm, I, it's interesting. So that band in, in '85 that broke down. That was the same band. It, Brent wasn't in that band. Uh, no, I think no. I I, I don't remember uh, well, but it was it, it wasn't necessarily the same as what was in the studio, it, because it was just who they could get. You right, know? Was, right, right. There was there was a core band, but if they if they couldn't get somebody, then they they had other. Oh no, that know. makes sense. No, of course, it started in '82. Bobby wasn't in it. It was Matt Kelly's band. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, that that's so. Um. Let me ask you about, uh, you know, your concept of, of, uh, of love and how you and how you give, bring love to the world. Oh, well, I, I believe in. I believe first of all that love is the most important thing there is, and that uh, if you're kind to people and 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 as compassionate as you possibly can be, and you you truly care about other people's feelings you're probably going to have a fairly nice life, you know, because hmm. because what goes around comes around. And, and so I think when people are vindictive or they're super critical or they're angry all the time and stuff, you know, it just it just makes the situation unpleasant for everybody. And, and frankly, I think the person who's angry suffers as much or more than the people they're mad at. Interesting. I mean, would you say that about Donald Trump? I would say he's very angry. I, I'd say that he's not a happy person. You know, he's. Right. He, I, I, have you ever seen him laugh? No. I, I mean, he doesn't like only animals. like only only if it's mocking somebody or something. You yeah, know? that's right. He laughed at somebody. Right. At, yeah. Exactly. Somebody's joke, or you know, not. What do you What do you feel about um, the the dark? I mean, there are shadows in life. There is darkness, and there's it's a dark time now. How what, How do you How do you Look towards the light in uh, in these uh, incredibly divisive and dangerous times. I try to maintain my own standards. You know, I, I try to be good to people. I try to, to I maintain a sense of humor. Um, I try to be understanding of people, and you know, with the understanding also that there are people who are who are going to try to hurt other people. And I think when you're when you don't dip your toe in that river and get uh, caught up in revenge and and getting even and and trying to get over on people and try to win, you know. Right. I, 
I have no interest in that stuff. It doesn't. That isn't what pays. I, I am much happier when people around me are happy, and when and you know, as I said before, the joy of creating something together that didn't exist before in the in the recording studio. You know, you don't need to fight. I mean, I learned a long, long time ago that basically you can do that, and you can you can make good recordings, and not get in an argument with people. So it's, uh, I, I think, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm distracted here for a second because I see somebody out in the back of my house giving me a package. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, that's it's a little uh, bit but, unnerving. Yeah, no. You know, but I, I just think that... that no, no, I mean, you're, you're telling me, though, that, that you've had experience, like, you've either had, heard horror stories about people sort of trying to micromanage in the studio. Uh, and I, they, I've done it myself. When I, when I was a young musician, when I was 19 or 20... I was the guy who was riding your ass saying, no, that's not the right chord. This is how the lick right. goes. You know, you're dragging. And I mean, I, and I, I realized after a certain point, even if you can get them to do what you want, you're creating bad vibes. And that's, that's that exactly goes. right. Dude. Yeah. And so like there was one time in the studio when, uh, I, you know, I have a, I've had a lot of experience, thousands and thousands of hours in the studio. And so so I think I know what works, you know. I think I know how to do stuff. And I remember there's this one band, and they wanted to record the drums after everything else, which generally is a bad idea because most everybody locks to the drummer to get their sense of time. So if the drummer comes in after <laughs> the fact... such a bizarre you know, thing, dude. I've never heard that in my life. And so so I, I said, well, you know, here's here's why you shouldn't do that. And I explained why. And they, and they said, okay, they listened to me. And they said, okay, we understand, but we want to do it anyway. Well, it turned out that it worked, <laughs> it worked okay. Yeah. And so I realized that me being dogmatic didn't need to be, I didn't need to be that way. Right. And, and, you know, frankly, it's their thing. So if they want to do it that way and they're willing to accept, that's uh, right. as long as I get a chance to explain what I think the pitfalls of a particular uh, approach are, then mm. as long as they listen to me and understand and then they say, well, we still we still want to record the vocals in the same room with the drums or whatever it might be. Well, but I mean, the, the other caveat is it came out okay. You also don't want to listen to something horrible for the rest of your life that you were on. Well, I don't always go back and listen to the recordings. I, I, I'm much more likely to, to remember the personal relationships I had. Absolutely. No, I, I think I was referring more to, like, the wrecking crew, like Emil Richards telling me that, like, you know... He messed up on bar, whatever, you know, in some cartoon, and everyone's lips are tired, and there's a full orchestra, and he's like, sorry, I messed up, we got to do it again, this is going way back, but, you know. Yeah, no, that's a high-pressure situation, if you're if you're in the wrecking crew, and time is money, and you're expected to, like, I played a, a session one time with Carol Kay, yeah. and and she, she came into the studio with her lovely daughter, by the way, and she played first time perfect. I mean, like, that she saw the charge. She crushed it, yeah. She nailed it. First time, absolutely without a flaw. And I, I thought, you know, that's, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to do that. <laughs> no, that's just, she's on a different level, though, man. Yeah, she's, yeah, she was, and she, you know, she read so well. And I, I didn't learn to read. In fact, the very first recording session I ever did that was, well, I guess it was the first session I ever did, was in Denver at Applewood Studio, which was the big studio there. And uh, I didn't even know what it was for. I just got a call, said, can you come play in a session? And how they learned of me, I have no idea. And I got to the studio. I walked into the, the recording room, 
and there were a bunch of chairs and music stands and so i set my amp up i picked just picked a place at random and then the other musicians showed up and and then the producer came out of the control room and he started handing out music uh, written music and i thought oh my god what have i gotten myself into <laughs> and and so as he put the <laughs> He put the music in my stand, and I tried to tell him that I didn't. Re- I said, "Oh, you know, I don't." And, and, and he just walked away, and I he didn't even listen to me. And so I picked up this chart, and I looked at it, and I could see that this was a uh, a C octave. I knew that much, and it was a very busy part. And this was uh, turned out to be for the, uh, the the Denver Channel Two News. And so in those days, the news themes were all based on the sound of a teletype machine. And so I knew that it was probably going to go, and sure enough, they, the producer goes back in the control room and he goes, okay, everybody, here we go. And I thought, Jesus, no sound check, no rehearsal, nothing. And, 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 and they counted one, two, and I went, for three minutes. And I didn't know what else to do. Right. And so, we finish the day, and the guy comes over the talk back mic. He goes, he goes, great job, everyone. We got it. So we're done. You know, we we spent a, a, a grand total of half an hour in the studio. You so, didn't know what you were doing. I I am loving this. And he and he comes back out and he starts picking up the music and he stops at my music stand and he says, "Hey man, nice job. You're you're a great reader." And I said, "No, I don't." And he, and he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> Hey Garth, listen. Let let's uh, we got to do part two in the next few weeks. All right, but let's uh, let's put a button in this right now. We just cooked for an okay, hour. We got to keep it down to an hour. Well, Jake, I have enjoyed this very much, and uh, no, we're I, gonna do it again. We're gonna do it again. But I wanted to also tell you, um, this will go up on Spotify. I'm tr- I'm I'm in the process of moving my entire entire archive also over to YouTube um, because it just receives more more fo- viewers, you know. And uh, so this will go up initially as a podcast, and then eventually we'll go on YouTube. Oh, great! I I can't wait to hear it. It was it was just it was it was I had a ball, man. It was it was great. It was great to hang. By the way, a number of my friends were very very pleased to know that I was gonna gonna have this interview with you. They know who you are. They respect you, and uh, so you've got a got fan club in the Bay Area here. Oh man, that's good to hear, bro. I'm just you know just trying to put you know just trying to strive for excellence. That's it, you know. Well, you're getting it. Thank you, my brother. Have a good night, man. Okay, thank you so much. Take care.